0: When we're able to step into the shoes of that person who's struggling, people start to open their minds about what they're willing to allow to be an okay answer for for helping those people. And I think psychedelic healing is really starting to jump into that lane and into the driver's seat. I want to go
1: where the moon shines bright. Welcome to the It Matters To Me podcast, a show that seeks out the passions in all of our lives and the motivations behind why we pursue them. With me on this episode is Sam Chapman, executive director for the nonprofit organization Healing Advocacy Fund. With over a decade of experience in advocating for progressive drug policy reforms at the local, state, and national level, Sam co-authored House Bill 3460 in 2013 that legalized medical marijuana dispensaries. And more recently, he served as the campaign manager for Measure 109 in Oregon a law that legalized the first ever psilocybin therapy program in the United States. We talk about how his upbringing in Oregon helped pave the way in his fight for the psychedelic therapies to become publicly available, and how Oregon is setting the standard for other states to follow in their legislative footsteps. Full of great insights into how the tools we use to support mental health are starting to evolve, our conversation really hits home and is one I hope you'll enjoy. Alright, let's get to it. Here's my talk with Sam Chapman. Sam, welcome to this show, man. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing pretty good, Adam. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, you know, I've... uh... I know we've, we've we've talked a little bit before, and one thing that excites me about doing this episode in particular is that you know I'm approaching two years on this podcast project, and one thing that I found that I really enjoy talking about is mental health issues. And so, you know, the reason that you're on today, and the, you know, a lot of uh, the experiences that you have had, and is going to be, is going to really tie into that. But this is one of those episodes where I feel like it's helping this podcast find its voice. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited to, uh, to go deeper. But before we do that, I'd like to start the show like I always do. And it's with a question that I hope gives the listener a little bit better insight into who the guest is and how they might have become the person that they are today. And that question is, if I knew you growing up, What kinds of stories would I tell about you?
0: What an, what an amazing question. There are two stories that you would tell about me if you knew me growing up and, and they're, they're very different, but the, the, the thread in between is maybe not entirely unique, but, um, you know, I, I was very lucky and privileged to be, to be raised by parents who basically instilled one general philosophy in me, which is that you can do whatever you want in life and believe whatever you want as long as you can back it up and justify it. And that naturally made me a fairly pragmatic child growing up. Um, I very much um, lived in reality and was skeptical of anything that didn't seem um you know tangible for me to understand as as a kid and so you know i growing up in high school and even in middle school i was i was really a, attracted to leadership um to public speaking to identifying problems and working with people for for coming up with solutions and um in high school that really started to bloom so i was i was sophomore class president. Um, and then senior year, I was ASB vice president, which means that I did the morning and afternoon announcements. I ran all of the assemblies. I was a public figure. So that's the, that's the clean leadership, like good kid uh, side of me that, that you would hear about. But if you knew me in person, you would also know that as sophomore class president, I had a footlong green mohawk and was totally punk rock. Like, uh, you know, I was, I, you know, I was very political, um, you know, I flipped my collar up that said like, fuck off Nazi, Nazi punks all around it. Uh, sorry for the language for the, the, the kids out there, but I straddled the fence between like, you know, really enjoying my leadership role, being a role model, um, despite like maybe visually I wasn't a role model for everyone in administration. Um, but I knew how to lead and I was good at it and I really enjoyed it. It really, it was my soul food. Um, was really finding myself in, at the intersection of, of problems and and coming up with solutions, like I said. Um, so those are the different stories. Like he can throw a hell of an assembly and he also knows how to throw a good party. <laughs>
1: Which I think I think it is a great way to lead into what you do now because uh, there's there's definitely a public face um, and a PR aspect to what you do, and so. Um, but before we kind of even get into that, so you you are the executive director of uh, the Healing Ad- Advocacy Fund. Um, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell uh, just yeah talk about what Healing Advocacy Fund is and how you found your way to that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. The Healing Advocacy Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, that we formed very quickly after the passage of Measure 109 in Oregon. For those who don't know, Measure 109 was the law that two years ago um, passed to license and regulate the first ever state level access to psilocybin therapy. And I'm sure we can go back and, and talk about that portion, but just to stick with HAF. We recognized very quickly after we passed that law that we were going to need to develop an organization that could help implement it. Um, And so the entire reason and cause for HAF is that we needed an organization that could really provide the education and resources to everyone in the entire ecosystem in Oregon to continue to move this program forward. And most importantly, to ensure that the Oregon program was built on a foundation of safety Quality and access for all who stand to benefit. As someone who has been involved with politics my entire adult life, and frankly, well before I was an adult, um, it was very clear that we had a lot of reason to be excited about what we just did. And we also had a lot of reason to really ensure that we all understand the responsibility that we have as Oregonians being the first to move this forward at the state level. right? There's a lot of reasons to be excited. There's a lot of hope and a lot of healing that this program stands to do. And we need to ensure that we get this right because it, all eyes are on Oregon and whatever happens here in Oregon, whether or not we create a golden standard for other states to follow, which I believe we are on track to do, or if we stumble and fall you know, flat on our face, those impacts are going to ripple through the entire country and around the world. And that's why we take our responsibility so seriously to not hit home runs in the first inning. Right. I think a lot of people, you know, want to have that mentality and that's fine. But as the people who invested in making this possible for the state, we also feel a very serious responsibility to ensure that we can protect and over time, expand the program to continue to serve as many people as possible that stand to benefit. So the Healing Advocacy Fund exists to help educate and promote safety, quality, and access for everyone who stands to benefit.
1: Yeah. And, and, and that's def- going to be the heart of uh, what we talk about. But well, yeah, the, that, that common through-line thread, um, you know, when, I was, uh, when I was getting out of the military, I was an intern on Capitol Hill in DC. And at the time there is a book that came out um, called this town. Um, And it's an, it's just a great like page turner because it's just a complete takedown of everything that is like the American political system in a very like just poking fun at it way. And the best way to really summarize it is just points out just how the, the fact that like our nation's government, the free world's government is run by basically high school, high schoolers that have never, that have never left their high school days behind. And so, yeah, hearing you talk about how your high school experience might've led you to this, just made me think of that. And it's just so true that, you know, a lot of what, not just not to, you know, be, not to denigrate the work that you're doing, but also understanding that, yeah, a lot of the stuff that what you're doing is like literally just convincing other people to come to your party. And, um, you know, but for much, much more, virtuous reasons. Uh, so kind of, yeah, I, I I kind of enjoyed that now back to what the work that HAF is actually doing. Um, you know, you mentioned it and you've talked about this in other, uh, interviews about getting it right, which would imply that, you know, Oregon and, you know, in my state, Colorado, that at one point we got it wrong. What is it that, both our states and states across the country have gotten wrong when it comes to at least the legalization of cannabis um, for recreational and medical uses? Yeah, it's a really great question.
0: Um, I don't think we have to look too far back in the history of psychedelics and drugs to identify probably the biggest glaring um, piece of that history where an assumption was made that was very quickly proven to be wrong, which is that you know, if we just usher psychedelics into society without really thinking much about how we do it or how we talk about it or who is doing it, like what is the message and the audience and who is the, who is the speaker to that audience, um, that we might end up taking steps backwards. And that's exactly what happened, um, you know, in, in, in the 70s is that, you know, uh, whether we like it or not, like, you know, that was a time in which there was a lot of, you know, strife going on right? And, and primarily like protesting the Vietnam War. Um, and there was a lot of people who, you know, rightfully so really felt that psychedelic healing had a role to play. And I think that they're, I think that they're right, to the extent that people still believe that today, I absolutely believe that. Um, but believing that, and enacting change within a system, a governmental system, a system of capitalism, whether you like to acknowledge that or not, are two very, very different things. And, you know, what I'll say is that we would not be here today without those activists. You know, I would not be here doing what I'm doing today had it not been for those types of activists that brought me under their wing when I was in college, um, you know, to really understand what my role um, could be in standing in the, in the middle of the intersection between passionate activists, often carrying flames and pitchforks um, and uninterested decision makers who are like, why would I ever take a meeting with someone who's just throwing flames and pitchforks at me? Um, And, you know, I think that there's a lot of lessons there that we are, we are starting to embody those lessons in the strategy of reintroducing psychedelic healing to the general public in a way that not only is digestible, but that they can relate to, right? And I think what we're seeing is, is pretty incredible. And, and, and I don't know how many people are truly acknowledging it right now, but I'm trying to say it as much as possible because I'm seeing it, which is that psychedelic healing in today's environment has the opportunity to transcend partisan politics in a way that no issue ever has and certainly no issue currently can in today's current political divisive environment, right? And I think that's a huge opportunity to really recognize that there's gonna be a lot of issues where we're gonna agree to disagree and that's probably success uh, given today's political environment to agree to disagree. Um, But we are really seeing psychedelic healing resonate with new populations that you know, otherwise just came from the all drugs are bad uh, mentality. And a lot of the time, that's not necessarily their fault. That was instilled in, in, in a lot of us. I mean, I'm a D.A.R.E. generation kid, right? Like, you know, abstinence is the way, prohibition is the answer. Like, you know, the whole the whole book um, on what not to do or not to be interested in, which, you know, we, I'm pretty sure we actually have like studies now that show it's actually the exact opposite impact that actually happens in reality when we tell kids not to be interested or think about something that it's just bad. Okay. Uh, and, um, I think we, I think there's a new opportunity that psychedelic healing is posing to show that we are all connected, that we do all know someone, if not ourselves that are struggling with mental health, whether it be anxiety or depression or addiction, you know, when we're able to step into the shoes of that person who's struggling, you know, I think people start to open their minds about what they're willing to allow to be an okay answer for for helping those people. And I think psychedelic healing is really starting to jump into that lane and into the driver's seat. That is allowing us to have conversations with people that we would otherwise like definitely never invite to our dinner table for a conversation. Right. I mean, you know, drug policy reform, you know, is starting to grow out of the mentality that like it's just a progressive liberal issue. Like Rick Perry in Texas is talking about the possibility for psychedelic healing for veterans because a veteran came and lived with him who was, I believe, suicidal at one point. And over the time in which he lived with Rick Perry, Rick Perry started to see that this guy was going off to different retreats and spending more time with other veterans and doing group healing and and became a different person. And that is a pure example of how anyone, no matter what walk of life that you're coming from or what preconceived notions you might've had before, that if you're willing to give psychedelic healing just a little bit of a chance, and you're willing to listen to someone else's story who either stands to benefit or who has benefited, the amount of change that can happen from someone's mentality is astonishing. Um, And I really am, am hard pressed to think of any other issue where we've seen that quick of a pivot from, I am so hard against this to, oh, wow, now I understand the value, right? I understand what psilocybin is. I understand what the clinical trials and the studies are showing. I understand what it is that you're proposing that's happening at the state level that, you know, it's licensed and regulated and it's in a container and there's trained facilitators and, you know, XYZ, the whole, the whole system, as opposed to what it's not, it's not retail sales. Right. And then when you add all those things, all the facts and the information together and you put, a story of healing that really pulls on the heartstrings of the listener on top of that. That's what got us in Oregon from where we started at 43% in favor of Measure 109 to 56%. For the politicos out there, you know there are not issues that swing like that in today's environment. They don't exist, right? And that really just goes to show the opportunity of a little bit of education, a little bit invest of an investment in meeting people where they are at and educating from there goes so far. And I think that is where the rubber has already hit the road and we are moving from, you know, the regular lane into the fast lane. And, you know, that comes with a responsibility. And so that is where, you know, that's where we're at right now.
1: And this is something that I've been thinking about lately. Cause I, I'm very open about my own personal psychedelic experiences and how they helped me not only when I was transitioning out of the military, but when I had cancer and those two things together were just a very, uh, very rough period of my life. And so I've been very open about how psychedelics has helped me and I definitely support the you know, you've been a part of this and I, you know, looking at the Healing Advocacy Fund page, uh, you, you know, you could see that story of the Navy SEAL who benefited from, um, benefits from psychedelics. And I definitely have friends that have seen combat that have benefited from psychedelics. But what I've been thinking about recently is that is, do you, do you think that maybe focusing on, and letting so many military veterans be the face of psychedelic therapies like revolution is that in some ways that it's also maybe possibly siloing it to uh, the public only seeing it as a form of treatment t- for military veterans. And what it would I want to say is like, I feel like in some some way, it might also be helpful to have, just, yeah, the person who's just, no, I, I'm just depressed. I'm not like, I'm not a veteran. I haven't, I have I don't have trauma in my past. I'm just, I have depression and letting, yeah, even though it's not as sexy as, yes, I was a Navy SEAL who did three combat tours and, you know, dealing with that, but like, but just making sure that this it doesn't become something that is only attributed to a specific community or sp- specific part of the community. Uh, and again, like, I don't even know how to really wrap that thought up, but just like something that I've been ruminating or thinking about recently. And I don't know what your thoughts on something like that might be. Yeah, totally.
0: I mean, every audience from every walk of life stands to benefit. And the idea that one can benefit more than another is a total false dichotomy. Right. So, you know, yes, like, you know, there are so many stories that deserve to be lifted up and I do think that there is an opportunity for us to continue to incorporate more of the stories that the average voter might personally relate to. Um, you know, with that said, there's a reason why we're including veterans and terminally ill cancer patients up front um, is because not only do those resonate with the people that also like maybe the a regular person who's like, yeah, I like have waves of Anxiety and maybe psilocybin is right for me. You know the, the the veteran argument resonates with that kind of person who I would consider like a fence sitting type of person. where like, you just need to like give them a little nudge and like maybe hearing from you know someone who's generally well off but might stand to benefit a little bit. Maybe that's good for them. Um, those people are not ten; they do not tend to be the targets of the messaging, right? The targets of the message messaging for folks are generally. You know, folks that don't know what psilocybin is, they don't know what the research is, and it's their first time really hearing about a story of healing. And from a political perspective, when we're talking about investing millions of dollars to push a 30-second advertisement out that maybe people will see once and then they're going to decide how they vote. We cannot risk to roll the dice with the average Joe person who might barely benefit to to have access, right? So, so it's 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 not either or; it's and. Um, all of those stories are incredibly powerful with the right audience, and I think that is the challenge and the opportunity that we have is to know our audience, know who our messengers are, and know what the most effective messages can be for every specific audience. At the end of the day, so as much as I hate to boil it down to a political equation, that's how we got to where we are. That's how we'll continue to expand. And I think as we continue to expand that, as we continue to message to what I refer to as the soccer mom and grandparent demographic, those are the people who vote. Those are the people who do not know what psilocybin is, let alone how to pronounce it. Um, You know, they need to be hearing like from our A plus stories out of the gate, right? And I think then that opens them up to hearing from their neighbor, right? Like once a law passes, you know, people start poking over the fence and having conversations and like, oh my gosh, like you voted for that too? Holy cow. Like I wasn't comfortable telling anyone that I voted for it, but here we are, right? And that's a big part of the transition that we're seeing in society right now. It's it's so exciting. Um, you know, and, but, and with that said, I think that there's some demographics that we've probably overlooked. Um, that could also be A+. plus. I mean, you know, it's, there's some overlap between the veteran community, but first responders are a real big one. Um, you know, before we, we started here, we mentioned that I, I just got back from South by Southwest speaking on a panel. Um, one of the panels that I enjoyed most going to was a panel on psychedelic healing for first responders. Not training for first responders who are showing up to a medical emergency, which is what the space conti- like is currently focused on. Like, how are we going to train law enforcement? And how are we going to train EMTs to deal with psychedelic emergencies? That is a valid question and a valid topic. With that said, the biggest takeaway that I had from this panel was how the hell can we ever be serious about training them if they also need help first? We should be supporting them before we ask them to support us. That was a huge takeaway that I had that totally blew my mind about, wow, we totally skipped over the most important step here, which is that for any of us to be able to help other people, we have to be able to help ourselves first um, and be able to really provide, provide ourselves our own opportunity for healing and for first responders, for doctors and nurses and EMTs who already had a huge rate of burnout um toss covid on top of that um my god like i i've got a newfound respect for that profession and i think there's a huge opportunity to meet them where they're at and that is the next step that i see as it relates to first responders we went down a little rabbit hole there but like that was just a there's few times where I go to a conference and anyone blows me away at this point because I've been to so many of them. But wow, like that was huge and huge credit to everyone. Um, you know that that was on that panel specifically, Professor um, Anthony Bach at the University of Washington, who is doing a study, um, a clinical study right now, actually with first responders. Um, and I'm I'm so excited to see the outcomes from that and hopefully be able to expand on that too. You know, there's such an important backbone of, you know, of these psychedelic programs that are getting set up, especially for the clientele who are going to be coming looking for services that have medically complex histories. They're on SSRIs. They have complex PTSD. Um, at some point in their life, they were suicidal, right? Like, those are very real health histories, and those people absolutely deserve Access to psilocybin services, and they need special attention from facilitators who might have training above and beyond the average facilitator. And so, to wrap up that thought, that just gets to the the the, the final point on that, where you know the the opportunity to really support them um, in the broader scheme of them being able to support the entire community through this healing modality that we're making possible here in Oregon El Colorado. It's really exciting um, and and a righteous opportunity, I think, for to, to be able to have the privilege to to work on and even
1: think about. Yeah, the, you got to heal the healers before they uh, before they go. Yeah, I have I have a cousin who's a uh, he's now a firefighter, um, but at the time of the story, he was a, a paramedic with a Chicago firehouse in like one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago, mm-hmm. and in the 24-hour ride along that I did with him um towards the end of my time in the military I saw I want to say like I saw more uh I I saw more things that you would associate with like combat I saw more people I saw more blood uh mm-hmm. on this 24-hour ride along with my cousin in Chicago than I did in my 4 years in the military uh, and and that and believe it or not, that was a slow day for him. Um, I think like the first call was like a heroin overdose and then maybe there was like one or two stabbings that we had picked up and then just, but just, yeah, like the military, I totally agree. Military veterans definitely have you know, have that sexy appeal, that attention grabbing, but just as important as the first responders could, man, I mean, he's been in, he's been in that role for years now. And I like just the stuff that he has seen is just, uh, just blows me away that he's still a functional human being. And the fact that there are so many people out there, it's, yeah, I think if there's any part of the U S population that is, you know, that I don't want maybe deserves it is it's, it's definitely them. So, um, well, you know, one thing that also came to mind and, uh, kind of what we've, you've already mentioned is this, uh, you know, this healing, this path to healing and, in. I know a big part of like integrative therapy um, in any therapy session is whoever's leading it has their own experiences with psychedelics. Uh, I would love it if you could share your own story with psychedelics and your own path to healing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think like a, a lot of people, I had various, you know, um, recreational semi-recreational experiences you know in in high school and, and and college but it wasn't until after college where I actually had my first intentional um experience with you know an a, with someone who had extensive experience in in the underground um with an actual experience and you know I didn't I, I mean it I'm very excited to do a lot more prep for my next experience than I did then. Like I did a little bit of prep, but in hindsight, it wasn't nearly enough. But, you know, the long story short is coming out of that experience, I became a lot more comfortable being vulnerable with myself as as basically as a as as a white male. Um, you know, and the privilege that I had and acknowledging that privilege that I have. And um it was ironically, it was actually that experience that allowed me to feel comfortable actually going to like talk therapy. Um, you know, I had I had gone through, you know, a really hard breakup at one point that I thought was gonna be the rest of my life. I'm sure many people out there yeah, we all, with like that, we all right? Well. Not an uncommon one. Yeah. Um And, uh, and plenty of people had suggested like, Hey, like, it sounds like maybe now might be a right time to like go to talk therapy. And I just kind of rejected it. And it was the psilocybin experience that helped me realize like, that rejection was just out of fear. And the fear was the opportunity to identify what the next step was going to be. And so not only was I able to Was that able to help me break through into a space where I felt comfortable going to therapy? But it allowed me to feel comfortable talking about going to therapy, which allowed me to feel comfortable talking with friends that had felt that were in the same place that I once was and me saying, Hey, look, like I know on the outside, like maybe I seem like a really well off guy who has no problems, like it's all good. And like an inside, like that was definitely not the case. And it allowed me to share that. And then as a result, my friends started going to therapy and like, just to be like, that was never the intention. The intention was just to share because they were curious, but it really opened my heart and mind up in a way that was totally unexpected. And to the point to where, you know, at one point I went to um, men's group therapy for over a year and that I would never trade that in for the life of me. Like you know, and at first I was really nervous about it because I, I had convinced myself, like, I'm just a perfectly fine, like, white dude who, like, is very lucky and, like, you know, everything's going well. It's like, whoa, like, that's, society taught me to tell myself that. That was the record, that was the realization that I had there. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was an eye-opening experience and, and I couldn't have been more grateful that because now I know not if but when I have bouts of anxiety or depression or I'm just stressed out or whatever it might be. Um I have a place I can go. And it's not just talk therapy, but it's also, you know, soon to be a a, a licensed and regulated system where I can actually, you know, go and, and 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 sit with with a facilitator who who knows how to hold and create that space for me when I need it.
1: because yeah. now 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 we're like In the thick of it where we could really, there's like four different things I want to go off on. But the first one I want to kind of ask is how did that, how did that present itself to you? So, and, and let me explain what I mean. So for me, um, cancer diagnosis, six months, chemo wrecked me getting out of the military, uh, was in a very serious relationship at the time, (laughs) um, that, that did not, uh, did not survive. And I was just holding on to so much hatred and anger at, at this person, at myself, at the world. And for me, my, uh, first like true psychedelic experience that helped me heal was I was living in, in DC at the time. Um, and I rem- I had a very. I would be now a small, but you know, an effective dose of psilocybin and the night before, you know, like it's like middle of the week I've been prepping myself. Cause I, at least at this point knew all about set and setting. Right. And I was, you know, it's like what you're talking about prepping myself for the experience over the couple of days. I like the night I cleaned my room. I mean, I I made my lunch for the next day cause I was still playing. Oh to man, you are ready. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I had my clothes out. I mean, everything was taken off to the table. Right. Uh, and so, and I, you know, and I just, I took the mushrooms and I I laid in bed and I put on a pair of headphones and I just covered my eyes and it it, it wasn't, it wasn't in the moment, but it was that few days, those like three days afterwards where I was just journaling about it and really just debriefing myself on it. And when I realized was as I was going to sleep, you know, we, we all can see like patterns and when we close our eyes and like weird images and stuff, what I was seeing was so vivid. It was like looking through a kaleidoscope. And as the, as the psilocybin really started to take hold, the more, clear and pronounced all of those shapes and fractals became. And so what I realized and what I told myself I realized was I was watching the beauty and forgiveness form in front of me. Mm. And so, yeah, how did did your healing experience present itself to you? Like what was personally, what did you kind of go through? Because I think that is what going back to what we were talking about before when we're talking about this messaging is not it's not only letting other people know that these things are effective but in knowing that like, hey this is completely different than an SSRI where you know 3 weeks down the line you're just going to start to feel different and now that this isn't like a night and day difference but this is what the experience of psilocybin actually is like for an individual right
0: I think that I mean, to be honest, my realization was not that dissimilar and that the bulk of it came in the days after within the integration. And part of it was spurred by journaling. Part of it happened in the actual session itself, but I wasn't able to actually put words to it as You know, ineffable is often uh, the word that we use to describe the indescribable, right? So, you know, it was partially ineffable, but started to form itself in the days after. And it was an entire train of forgiveness for myself. Forgiving myself for putting, you know, a stigma on my own you know, success or that I wasn't good enough or that I hadn't done enough to help other people. Like my strength and my weakness is that like, I'm a serial problem solver at the end of the day. Like if someone puts a problem in front of, in front of me, whether it is my problem to solve or not, like I will try and solve it. Like it is, you know, it's again, like it's why I'm here today. And it's, you know, one of the biggest things that I'm constantly bringing up in therapy. Right I like, can so it's it can go both ways and and that's okay, like it can be both. it's part of who I am, and forgiving myself for thinking that it had to be some other way um was what really just lifted the gorilla off my back um and that's not to say that that gorilla doesn't come back from time to time, right, but that's, I, I know who it is and where it comes from and I can feel it creeping up. And I have tools now to work with. And just the existence of those tools like minimizes the weight of that gorilla by a lot, right? Like it's still there and it's okay. It's okay that it exists. That's part of my life. That's part of who I am. That's, life wouldn't feel like life without that, right? Um, and I see it as the opportunity now um, to acknowledge that something might be coming up, and over time, throughout additional healing sessions and additional therapy and just like a lot of journaling um you know, I have mechanisms now that I've developed to instead of reacting to it, sitting with it um and meditation and 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 general breath work i haven't gotten nearly as far down the breath work um path that I'd like to. Um, but I, I do utilize it during my meditation and am trying to also start to incorporate it in my cold plunge, uh, routine in the morning, uh, which is a whole nother podcast. But yeah, so that's, that's a lot of, you know, the, the nutshell of the story of kind of some of the learnings during and mostly after and in the integration and, and really being able to develop new systems for rewiring, which we know that psilocybin is often very well positioned to help do right like it can it can disconnect but it's up to you to rewire it differently right like and that's, that's where a lot of people i think are spot on is that you know sometimes we talk about psilocybin as if it's the cure-all or the panacea it is not and it's certainly not for everyone right um but you know for those who can safely benefit from it, it is a very powerful tool but you have to like any tool Uh, you should read the manual (laughs) and you should understand the precautions and like wear your safety goggles and like, you know, like don't be drunk when you're using a bandsaw, like, you know, those kinds of things that applies for psilocybin too. Um, And I think that's a lot of the work that we can continue to do with society overall as we start to create more access to these tools is is hold the responsibility while still recognizing, you know, that um, there's a real opportunity here for for folks to heal that have otherwise not been able to.
1: And that's also what I appreciate about the message and the work that you guys do is that you're not presenting it as this either or, like it's either psilocybin or Western medicine. And and it's not like as if this is a hundred percent cure all this. I mean, it has, studies have shown that it has a much higher effective rate at treating, you know, uh, depression that doesn't respond to other kind of medications and severe kind of trauma, but it, it's definitely not a hundred percent. And I think I th- I've heard you talk about this on another podcast is just how important it's not only not not only important to med- having access to the medicine, but it's the, it's the therapy afterwards. It's the, it's being connected with someone who understands what the experience is and, and not just like try to get into this mushroom f- mill of like, enter here, take this pill, leave, leave out this door and you're all good. But just like the focus on the work that like this is an ongoing process and kind of your own personal story and my own personal story is that, yeah, this is a continuing process when it comes to, when it comes to healing, it's not something that is just a one and done kind of situation. Right. Yeah.
0: And, and- you know, for me, that that brings up one of the, the biggest challenges with Measure 109, the Oregon program, um, from a communications and just general education perspective, which is like this false dichotomy narrative. Like, is it medical or is it wellness? It's like, do, does it have to be either or? It does not. Like, and in fact, if you really take a good look at Measure 109, um, it is paving a new path. Measure 109 embodies the philosophy that just because you're... An ER doctor who has seven different medical degrees and, you know, you've been doing it for 40 years does not mean that you know anything about psilocybin, um, how it works, or the long, long history of indigenous ceremonial use, right? And those are important things to know, generally speaking, if you're going to be working in this space. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum... Just because you've been doing 40 years of incredible ceremonial indigenous work in those communities does not necessarily mean you're ready to provide, you know, ethical services at, you know, uh, at the state level at scale, right? Um, Measure 109 says we need the entire spectrum of all of those people to, to be able to have access to this because the demand for services is going to come from every nook and cranny of society. Um, And we need to be able to ensure that people who are coming and seeking services have an ability to receive support from members of their own community, right? I mean, you know, one of the best examples here is, you know, if we're serious about creating access for underserved communities or for the BIPOC community, for example, you know, we can't just say, okay, we're just going to fund access for you. We need to support to ensure that there are licensees that are coming from that community. Right, and that's one of the reasons why the Healing Advocacy Fund has created a scholarship program for students seeking grants to attend training programs that otherwise would not be able to afford it. Um, you know, we've we've deployed about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for um, a handful of students that otherwise would not have been able to afford a training program, and that is by no means going to solve the inequity problem of licensing and a regulated system. Right, the first iteration of this program is. Going to be unfortunately prohibitively expensive for many. Um, and that's a lion's share as a result of it being federally illegal. With that said, that's not stopping us from taking the first steps forward, right? Those are, those are challenges that are our opportunities to acknowledge in real time and to say, okay, we see that challenge. We accept it. It is now our opportunity to start to find incremental ways to provide solutions long term and You know, there's a lot to take on in that category, um, from from equity and affordable access to, you know, figuring out how to eventually solve the federal illegality and everything that comes with 280e, making this this an incredibly hard business to make viable. Right? That's there's a lot of truth in that, and I think, you know, some of the 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 parts of our job are also to really help people open their eyes. Right? Just because you sold your Second house at the beach, and you've got fifty thousand dollars kicking around, does not mean that you're necessarily ready to enter into this space, right? Um, And I've I've talked with people that fit that exact example, and I've talked with incredibly well-capitalized people that have DEA licenses that have never heard of 280E, and so you know we're all in this boat together at the end of the day. And I think the more that we can. That we can really recognize that and recognize the power that we have collectively to solve problems. Um, I think the more that we'll continue to see the foundation really set and be solid. And then we get to start to put the walls up and then people get to move in and you know, we've got our we've got our little
1: family moving. Because we could put paintings on the wall, we can That's right. uh, That's
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a little, you know, a a community ecosystem of wherever you want to live, right? Urban, rural, whatever, you know, that's the long term path.
1: Do, do you think the movement is benefiting or is in some ways hindered from not having like this singularity moment where it's like a cuz like you know it's hard to believe you know i i'm 36 approaching 37 but yeah maps and a lot of the research that maps has been doing it's been going on for 20 30 40 years and right. so this gradual process now over the last five years it feels like it's really accelerated but i feel like you know it's been a very slow and methodical uh process to get to where we're at now and so do you think that the movement needs a singularity moment that like grabs the nation's kind of attention or do you think that this slow methodical approach as uh as kind of like, as just as slow and maybe frustrating at times as it can be is the right way to do it. It's a really good question. Um, had you asked me that question 10
0: years ago, I'd have given you a totally different answer. 10 years ago, the answer was hell yeah, we need a singularity. When is it coming? Um, today while I generally share that sentiment, um, I'm a lot more cautious in my years of wisdom and, in operating within drug policy and that you know, just because we won Measure One Hundred Nine here in Oregon with fifty six percent doesn't mean that it can't be taken away tomorrow. Um, and that is where my opinion these days is not necessarily the most popular opinion, right? Like I see my job as to to protect what we have earned, and by going as fast as we can, swinging for the fences in the first inning, that's a sure way to skip and cut corners. And the more corners we cut the faster that this stands to get taken away from us, right? And we have a huge responsibility um, to acknowledge some of the realities that are coming, but I actually don't think that our space is fully embraced yet, right? Um, You know, it's not a question of if our program, if someone is going to have a psychotic break at some point after going through a state program, unfortunately, it's not a question of if, There will be ethical violations and and a sexual assault between a client and a facilitator. Um, Those things will happen. And it's time to pull the band-aid off and recognize that. And that's not specific to psychedelics. That happens in all other uh, types of spaces, unfortunately. And our job is twofold. Our job is one. Are there opportunities for us to do things differently where those other spaces were not able to because they were too far down the line? Right. Just think of like psychotherapy or or other types of offerings generally speaking. Like, where are there opportunities for us to do things differently? And the second is, where are there opportunities for us to create better support systems when those things happen? Better reporting systems for when those things happen. Better safety nets for when there are adverse events. Right. These are not things that, you know, I think we should get stuck on in fear mode. Right. And I think that right now, the majority of the psychedelic space is kind of like, ooh, like we shouldn't be talking about those things. And, and right now, I'm trying to crank it up to 11 uh, on those things. As much as that we don't want to talk about them, we need to, because if we don't, and we don't have a plan, and we're not acknowledging that those things are coming when they come we're going to be in trouble if we don't actually have a plan to really be able to support and address those things when they happen. And again, recognizing that they happen in other places is not unique to psychedelics, but if we're caught flat footed, this whole state level game that we've pulled together, that we're so proud about, will be taken away in a hot second.
1: Man, Yeah. That um, there's a local meetup here in Denver, Denver psychedelic club. um, And it makes me think of a meeting that I, went to a few months ago and, you know, as we're all just sharing our own personal experiences and one person, very, very grateful that he shared this experience, but yeah, he did not have the rosiest thing to paint about his own session. And I think it's really important um, that other people know that like, again, what we were talking about before, that this is not a cure-all and his, his situation was basically, he was working with a therapist and I, and I'm, and I don't know if the therapist was, had, I don't think the therapist had psychedelic experiences themselves. And so, and it wasn't as, you know, the, the nightmarish, like this person just had a mental breakdown and just was running around the street without clothes on it. They just realized like, yeah, the amount of vulnerability that is required for these, for these healing sessions, um, he, he definitely gave a lot of power to this person who didn't know how to correctly handle it. And so it just was, it it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't the rosiest thing. It wasn't positive. It wasn't, uh, it kind of left him in some, in his own words, left him feeling like he had taken a few steps backwards. And so I think, yeah, that is, it is unfortunate, but it is the truth that needs to be out there almost side by side as these things are. in because I totally agree with you that it is maybe as great as it would seem if like, you know, I can throw whatever. Famous figure out there comes out and says like, yes, I have, uh, you know, I have benefited from psychedelic therapy. It has transformed my relationships with myself and others. Like how awesome that would be. But then it's also like, whoa, 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 we don't want to be rushing too far into this. And so I totally agree that this gradual, steady approach is the most effective way um, to make this thing last. Um, if I had, if I had a ma- magic wand and I could fast forward. 10, 15 years. However, where would you like to see this environment be?
0: Well, I mean, I think I'll use the analogy that you used before in terms of like, you know, do we, do we advocate for the singularity or do we keep kind of pushing in what I would consider kind of three different paths, right? So we have the federal path, right? Like we are maybe a year away from like prescription MDMA for PTSD at the federal level. Right. Like that's huge. Like we got to keep, we got to keep pushing on that. Right. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, we're really starting to see the removal of criminal criminal penalties and, and, and decriminalization start to take hold too. Um, And I'm not talking about lowest law enforcement priority. That's great at the city level, but I like, I need to take a stand and pick a bone for a second, which is, lowest law enforcement priority is not decriminalization. Like the first person that goes to jail because they thought that something was decriminalized, but there's just law- lowest law enforcement priority that got a cop who wanted to be an asshole about it. Like that's a misinformation campaign, like waiting to happen basically. But anyways, still support all of it. It's all in the right direction. Decriminalization is starting to really move forward too, from a social justice perspective and really like the, you know, the idea that like, we should not be putting people in jail um, for drug use, right? Like that is a mental health issue to the extent that it is, it is not a criminal issue and we should not be treating it as such. And then the, 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 the middle level is Oregon and Colorado, right? Like license and regulated access. And I think it's really unfortunate that there's, you know, a handful of folks out there, though I'm, I'm not entirely surprised that, that think that, you know, all of these models are going to like fit together. Like, I think that there are bridges between them that we need to create for people to go from one space to another, but these these different avenues can coexist. Um, and I think we're a couple of years out, if not less, from finding each other in the middle of this intersection, right? Um, and figuring out, like, how can we all continue to coexist and lift all boats up in this situation uh, to really allow for those bridges to happen, right? Because I do think that per your example, there might be some folks that are very ingrained in the underground community, or that was their first introduction into it. And that works for some people, but it may not be the level of care that, you know, my mom would want, right? Like, my mom is probably more interested in like, you know, I can see your credentials, you're listed online, you have good reviews, like you have a license from somewhere, right? Like, and I generally think like, The larger portions of population probably fall in that bracket. We'll see. Um, And there's folks who, you know, are more on the clinical route, right? And I think if we look at prescription MDMA for PTSD, veterans are going to have a big, big path there. There's still challenges at that path, just like there are challenges with decriminalization, just like there are challenges at the state level. And I really would implore people to say, like, just because... You're in one of those lanes and not the other does not make the others enemies. We're all together trying to heal people and we have to meet people where they're at, right? So prescribing one for a different community, like just is a futile effort. And and, in my personal opinion, I really think that it's okay if we're taking different paths. Like that's the whole point is to take a path that works for you. And so that's where I think You know, long term, all of these paths are going to continue to evolve and hopefully the pipelines widen for everyone, right? I think that's what everyone wants is to, whichever path is right for you, we want to be able to make sure that you can actually benefit from it, right? And we're still in the process of building some of those pipelines. We're definitely in the process to the extent that they exist to continue to monitor and improve those pipelines of access. And none of that is going to happen overnight. Um, But we are starting to hit our stride. And as we hit that stride, and as we pick up steam, it's important for us to pay attention to the miles per hour sign on the highway to determine whether or not we are like, whoops, like we were slamming on the gas here. Like it's time to like pull over and take a bathroom break real quick. Cause like we were really speeding and we got lucky that we didn't get pulled over. Um, Maybe not a great analogy uh, with law enforcement, but it's what came to the top of the head.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Well Sam, I think uh you know we're we're kind of coming up on an hour and um you know there's there's so many things, you know, uh, there's so many ways I want to take this conversation or you know I could have taken this conversation but I love just hearing a mix of what your own personal story is and just W- the work that you're doing it, and going beyond just all of the, the platitudes and just like the business jargon out there. Cause that's the one thing I hated about the cannabis legalization was like, Oh, we're okay. just going to legalize it and tax it and right. that'll soothe all the Republicans that are anti drugs or whatever. And it's like, no, because that just sets up another system of taking advantage of people. And so what I, I just want to tell you, I, I just appreciate not only what the healing advocacy fund is doing, but just you personally being out there and talking about these things that are, 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 ch- are just, ch- you know, challenging for other people to, to maybe articulate, but you're doing it in such an effective way that it, um, yeah, it's changing minds and and it's definitely changing the landscape as far as uh, policies go. So, um, just, Thank you. <laughs> it's probably the, the easiest way to summarize all that. But then, yeah, but this, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been, this has been an, uh, an absolute pleasure. And, um, if anything, I'm uh, excited about my own, you know, hopeful involvement in the HAF's work here in Colorado. Cause I, yeah, when I talked to your counterpart earlier today, Tasha, that was a big sticking point for me was how do I, how do I help? And so um yeah I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to t- to talk to me today.
0: Yeah no Adam it's been an absolute pleasure and 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 I I, I really appreciate it. and what I'll say is that it takes a village and it will continue to take a village. And so while you're continuing to figure out what your role is I would also tell you that you're you're doing it right now. <laughs> you know, you're sharing your story, right? You're putting yourself out there um and at the end of the day changing hearts and minds is is a facts and heartstrings type game. So like whether you, you recognize it or not, like you're well down that path right now and, and, and we're all really lucky to have you and, and thank you uh, for putting yourself out there and, and continuing to, to lay the bricks for everyone behind us to walk on as we continue to, to do everything we can to create more access to healing and helping people.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the It Matters to Me podcast with my guest, Sam Chapman, Executive Director of the Healing Advocacy Fund. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to their website where you can learn more about their advocacy work and just the research behind psychedelic therapies. And if you have a minute and you enjoyed this episode and the podcast that we're all so far, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend. It really helps other people discover the show. And like always... You can get in touch with me by writing an email to adam at itmatterstomepodcast.com. Can't wait to talk again soon. This is Adam Casey, signing off.